Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. You know, when I was earlier in my career, I really thought that the CTO's job was to know the most about the technology. Really, the CTO's job is to hire the people that know the most about the technology and then translate it to the business people who, you know, don't speak it at all. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. Inflation, recession, uncertain macroeconomic environment, layoffs, reorgs, these all seem to be the buzzwords dominating headlines nowadays. And you very well may know that now is an extremely challenging climate to be operating in as an engineering leader. In this episode, Ryan Graciano, co-founder and CTO at Credit Karma, shares with us what it was like to start a company during an economic downturn where these similar themes echoed. We also cover how his leadership style had to evolve alongside Credit Karma's growth, strategies to bridge the gap between engineering and the business, advice on running lean and determining what matters most, who to hire when first scaling yourself and your engineering organization, And Ryan shares some of his favorite failed leadership experiments. Let me introduce you to Ryan. As a co-founder and CTO, Ryan has grown the company's engineering department from a one-man band into a team of hundreds. As a leader, he serves as a constructive agitator, looking to break down traditional workplace hierarchies and empowering each member of his department with real influence over the future of the product. Enjoy our conversation with Ryan Graciano. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. How are you doing today? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm doing great today, actually. I'm wide awake. I was only awakened by my toddler once last night, so I'm feeling pretty good. Any bad dreams to report or anything of note? There there were some dreams, something involving a water slide. Now water parks are banned for a while. Good thing it's winter. One of the things that I continuously marvel at is the imagination of a young child. And so it sounds like at the toddler age, it must be that area where you just get to be exposed to so many great imaginative experiences. It's a lot of fun. I do really enjoy it. I mean, it does sort of, it pulls you out of all the tech and then into this very different world. That's great. To begin our conversation, I wanted to start off a little bit with getting a sense of your story and the origin story of Credit Karma. My understanding of the story a little bit is that Credit Karma was started in the middle of a financial crisis. And since then, being acquired by Intuit for $7.1 billion, and even now within the Intuit portfolio, are one of the fastest growing segments. And so to really go back to the beginning... What was it like starting Credit Karma in the middle of a financial crisis? Can you bring us into that story in that moment? Well, I mean, it, when we started, it wasn't the financial crisis yet. It was, it was the peak. 
so we were feeling pretty good when we started. It was like, you know, <laughs> money is flowing, mortgages are everywhere. So, you know, that bodes well for a company that sells a lot of financial services products. Um, but we pretty quickly were brought to reality when we launched our beta product. And then not long after, you had banks going under. The crisis was in, you know, full bore. And it was rough. I mean, we we were really struggling to raise money. The site couldn't monetize. And, you know, the one thing that kept us going was the the product had great product market fit. So people loved the product right out of the gate. Uh, and the feedback was amazing. And we had all this traction, but we just didn't have any money. Uh, and it was really hard to get money. And so that really, I think, shaped how we manage the business, you know, thereever after, because we had to figure out a way to keep this thing alive until the timing was right. And when you say that experience shaped the business thereafter, can you share a little bit about some of the either lessons or some of the maybe the principles that shaped your thinking then that have continued to persist to Credit Karma now? Yeah, I think, well, one, there was this real focus on does the product actually work? Like, do people like the product? That was really important because that was kind of all we had. You know, we didn't have the hype. We didn't have the funding. You know, there wasn't like tons of money rolling in. We were on pretty threadbare budget. But we did have the what people felt about the product. So we hyper-focused on that. And then we had to run super lean. You know, so it was kind of like a, a no-frills sort of company back then. But at the time, I was working remotely um, due to a family thing. And when I flew out to Oakland to work, I would crash on our CEO's couch for years <laughs> because that hotel room was expensive. We just didn't have the money at the time. And it was hard to raise. You know, we went out, we tried to raise a Series A. We talked to like 43 VCs or something like that. And we weren't trying to raise much. It was like $2 million on like a $10 million or something like that valuation. And we had like essentially no interest. Like we had doors slammed by almost all of them. And then we had uh, an offer for, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get the number wrong, but it was like $2 million on like $4 million valuation or something just like insulting. Mm-hmm. And we turned it down. Um, because we thought that, you know, it'd just be crazy to do something like that. And so we just decided, look, we're just going to come up with ways to survive. So we came up with other revenue streams, figured out ways to make money last. So, so much of what you shared, these are like the echoes of the patterns of a lot of folks that are at sort of early stage companies that that have been sharing with me within the, the halls of engineering leadership. When you look back on those experiences, like, what did some of those early days teach you about leading engineering back in the, those times when things were lean, you're navigating funding? Like, what did that teach you about engineering and engineering leadership? Yeah, it was an interesting time because the cloud wasn't such a thing. You know, now if you're starting up, you know, you're going to spin up your cloud instance on GCP or whatever. Back then, it was like, I had to get a hosting provider. I had to spin up actual physical servers. And then we had to do that in a lean way. You know, that wasn't easy to do at all. So you had to learn a lot more about the actual bare metal back then than you ever would now. But I actually think that that information is valuable. The further you know down the stack does come in handy later on. And you know, I thought when we were scaling in the kind of like the middle of our of our growth trajectory, understanding those dynamics was really helpful, even for the stuff that was in cloud. It was just like gave us a really good understanding of how things work, um, which is something that, you know, I don't think comes as easily today because so much is abstracted away. Totally. I love the idea of learning from running lean and extending your knowledge down the stack. When you're looking at companies today that are in sort of that maybe series A 
trying to figure out some of those elements. What would be your advice or perspective on helping people run lean then or like things that you learned about running lean that was really helpful for you at that time? My focus back then was really dial in on the things that matter. Because with engineering, you know, there's always this discussion. And it's one of like my most hated terms, tech debt. Because I, I kind of think like, like, what, what does it really even mean? Like, what, are you ever out of technology debt? It's not possible, right? There's always something wrong. There's always something that you could do differently or some like vision that you had that could have been implemented in some other way. And, you know, it could be security or quality or maintainability, reliability, performance. There's like, you know, you could rattle off a thousand dimensions upon which your software is imperfect. Um, and I think when you're trying to run really lean, you have to focus on what matters and try to like peek around corners a little bit to see like what's really going to matter in a year or two. Um, and so, you know, we couldn't do like everything that we wanted to create the most beautiful technology stack in the universe at the time. But we did, I think, do a pretty amazing job building an initial tech stack that scaled extremely well on a very limited budget with, and I think this is possibly the most important, with limited personnel, even in a, you know, this non-cloud server hosted environment. That was important because we could have spent three years like developing our microservices stack in 2008. I don't know that that would have been the best use of time. The, the what matters question I think is so is so powerful. Is there a decision point that you felt was a, a really challenging one to wrestle with when you were determining a couple different pathways to go down? And it was really hard to pick one and to answer the question of what matters here with what we're looking at. Like, was there sort of a, a crucible decision that you had to make in some of those early days when answering that question the right way really mattered? Yeah, I think everything with the databases, it just kind of felt like every year we were always reaching like a big fork in the road with the databases. And, you know, some some decisions I made, I greatly regretted later. <laughs> like the, the Using joins early on, it, it did, it accelerated us so much, you know, because you can just do so much if you're just like letting people use SQL unfettered. But then like two years later, it was the most horrifically painful, horrible experience to then go and shard. I regretted every single join I think I ever wrote. And you look back and it's like, well, you know, was the developer velocity worth it? I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, there are a lot of forks in the road there where it was like, okay, you know, how much do we want to sacrifice to scale in a little bit versus like we have three developers and we, we really need to get this feature out. And what what was the inflection point where things felt less I guess less challenging? I don't know. Maybe that maybe that maybe that point never arrived. But the the point where that scarcity and that that need to be really lean and to, and to prioritize in like that rigorous of a way was there an inflection point where you could change that process or the guiding principles around those things? Yeah. So in 2012, we really figured out the engine, you know, so I, and I would mm -hmm. say like the monetization engine, essentially. So we figured out unit economics, the economy was coming back, and we just exploded. It was like you put a dollar in and you got a dollar plus a lot more out in marketing. And so we just became this massive hockey stick. Um, and it was very exciting because you're hiring as fast as you can, you're building as fast as you can to try to capitalize on the growth and everything's nuts. So you, you experience, you have kind of the same problem, but like in almost like the inverse experience, like the first experience is like, well, I have no money and no resources. What do I do now? It's like, I have infinite money. I have so much money, but then like, I, I now have like a thousand things that I need to do and they all feel incredibly urgent because the site is, has to scale super fast and data is getting really big. And now we have all these security and compliance concerns we didn't have and regulators peeking under the hood. And, you know, there's just all this stuff that hits you all at once. And then the investors, you know, pushing on like, how do we make it go faster? 
and then you have to hire, you know, how do you hire another several hundred people, you know, all at the same time. So it's weird. It's like you go from this problem of scarcity to this problem of plenty, but the kind of the solution is the same. It's like ruthless prioritization is what you have to do. What did that look like when you were hit with all of those demands at, at once? Like what does the, the ruthless prioritization look like in practice for you then? Well, for us, I mean, what I always said at that time was like, nothing matters more than investing in, you know, I, I don't know if you play any board games, but like, if you ever play board games with an economy, like you invest in the economy first, always put energy into creating more later. And, you know, for us, that's hiring, you know, it's like how scale the team first, you know, that so you don't have this problem in six to 12 months. And that meant like, you know, six hours a day or whatever of recruiting on days, but you know, it was worth it, even if some things had to be delayed. And then there were a bunch of things where we just had to say, like, you know, is this really priority number one right now? Because we have to do all this recruiting and we have to scale. And, you know, you're just trying to figure out, like, what does it take to keep the site running for another year and do the top three business priorities? <laughs> and then everything below that line, just you don't do. You know, you do the top three in the hiring and you know, that's what matters. Definitely. I, I have a couple of questions that go more towards the business education side of engineering leadership, because your fluency and ability to really map the priorities of the business to engineering, like it's so clear to me as we're, we're talking through some of these different stories. And one of the challenges that comes up a lot in our community is sort of bridging that gap between engineering and the business and both in communicating that and the value of engineering to the business, but also being able to communicate the business to engineering and all of the miscommunications and te intention that can come up because of that, I was wondering when you're talking about like these priorities and making these investments with other peer executives, like were there parts of the conversation that you found really resonated or, or I guess different frameworks or phrases or conversations that were critical that helped you bridge that gap between the business and engineering? Yeah. And I think to your point on like being, you know, fluent in the business, you know, when I was earlier in my career, I really thought that the CTO's job was to know the most about the technology. Really, the CTO's job is to hire the people that know the most about the technology and then translate it to the business people who you know don't speak it at all. That's that's much more your job is to connect those two worlds. But the yeah, the things that I found worked um, really well in speaking with you know other leaders of different types is don't really make it about technology, make it about the business. You know, so I tried to, you know, speak in concrete terms as much as possible. Try to make it clear like what, you know, I thought would happen if we did or didn't do a thing. Um, you know, I try to avoid like hand wavy this is another reason why I hate that tech debt thing. It's so hand wavy. <laughs> like what is that even like how much debt is it? Like how much surplus am I creating by taking on this debt? I don't know. But you know what I can say is the site won't be able to serve users effectively in a year or two. Or I can say like, look, I think that our developers would be like maybe thirty to fifty percent more efficient. And I can say things like that. Um, and people understand, you know, generally what it means. You can use metaphor and all kinds of things to illustrate that, but I think being too abstract does you disservice. You know, usually I try to speak in terms of like delivery time. You know, how long does it take to bring things to market? Because those are the things that people ultimately understand. And in, and in risk, it's like, okay, what kind of risk and what sort of actors? You know, because it's hard to see. People always ask you like, well, how likely? How likely is it? It's like, well, I don't know. How likely is it that there's an earthquake right now? I can probably give you a number. But, you know, what... <laughs> What I can tell you is, in terms of security, what I can tell you is the types of people that attack and like, you know, what their motivations are and what sorts of things you're doing that might attract them. And then, you know, you can sort of like then paint your own mental picture of what that risk is versus me just saying, eh, 14%. I don't know. Trust me or not. 
<laughs> yeah, much, much harder to grasp the numbers there versus like personifying it with a descriptor of the actor. I like that. I like that practice a lot. I want to go back and talk a little bit about building the monetization engine because kind of going to the narrative that exists right now for early to mid-stage companies that are taking in funding and are sort of trying to figure out their own version of a monetization engine. From your perspective as an engineering leader, what was really helpful for you to learn or to know that helped you better contribute to architecting the monetization engine in the earlier stages? This is, I think, an advantage of being a very small team early and kind of being, um, you know, on the founding team is just seeing all the dynamics of how the business works. You know, as you're building, you can really start to develop an opinion on, you know, what would be best for the business. And, you know, there are a lot of things that we, we don't have time to like write down on a PRD. <laughs> I mean, a lot of our PRDs were like a fairly rough sketch of what a feature would be. And then, you know, I would fill in the blanks with our designer, you know, we would just kind of work together and map out like, well, how, how should Splow work? Um, and then the more you're paying attention to what that then does, like what your last features did and what works and what doesn't and what your unit economics are like, the more you kind of understand where to nudge those flows and those features, you start to really develop an opinion. And, you know, I think that the best engineering people are also really good product people. You know, they can walk both lines. Um, and the more you understand the business, the more you can do that. Um, but the more you sort of like kind of throw stuff over the wall or, you know, say like, ah, you know, that's the product guy's problem. You know, you're doing yourself a disservice. Absolutely. I think what's so interesting also about this story is, you know, we're talking about how Credit Karma evolved, navigated the economic downturn and crisis at that moment and into where it is now. But throughout all of this too, is like your own leadership story and how you had to evolve as a leader. My understanding is that before Credit Karma, you were an IC at IBM. How did your leadership have to evolve through all of this from the early days to now as the company matured? Yeah, I was uh, an IC and I actually uh, had really painted a career for myself where I would just talk to as few people as possible. And I thought that my, my job was going to essentially be a lot of computer on-person interaction and very little person-on-person interaction. That was sort of my vision. And I even took this role where I was this manager at IBM was like, well, if you don't join my team, you can just kind of do whatever you want. I won't give you any goals or, or tasks or anything like that. And I thought it was so cool that I could just, you know, do whatever every day. And I did all this researchy stuff, you know, publish these internal things. And um, what I realized is that it's not actually fun to just kind of work off on your own when no one really is that invested in what you're doing. I, I really hated it a lot. And so, you know, that's sort of what pushed me to go and do credit karma. I was like, I want the opposite of this. I want like lots of pressure and, you know, kind of like people all around me, and customers. Um, and so, you know, I, I actually kind of discovered along the way that I enjoy the technology a lot, but it's actually the stuff around the technology that really motivates me to use the technology. And so I, I think I had to just discover that experientially. And it meant overcoming a lot of personal hurdles. I was terrified of public speaking. I mean, just awful. And then, you know, there's not many ways to, to get better at being nervous about something like that other than do it. So I just did it a lot and it was horrible. But you can afford to be kind of horrible at first. You just have to be steal yourself for how horrible you're going to be and then do more and eventually you get better at it. I mean, that's such a great point. And that's such a common thing that folks bring up about public speaking. Do you have like a process for how you steal yourself against doing something poorly for the first time? I had a way of coming up with these things that I wanted to do. That's like how I learned that I came up with the public speaking. I'd actually like mentally just go through like, if I were to hire someone to take my job next year, what would they do better than I'm doing now? And 
usually there's this kind of like stark moment of realization, like, oh man, there's a couple things that are really important that I should get on. And I, you know, at the time I realized that public speaking was one of them. And so, you know, I think first is just this making this commitment, like, hey, I'm going to do it. And, you know, just kind of pushing yourself through the discomfort, um, I think is important. But then, you know, trying to set up a safe-ish space to do it, you know, at the time, what what I had done was I created like this weekly all-hands meeting at the end of the week. And we're not like a big team at the time, you know, we're like 20 people or something. But, you know, this weekly all-hands engineering thing for this 25 people, you know, I had to get up there and introduce and speak. And, you know, it was a pretty awful. I remember the first time there were these two women in the front row and they were like giggling at how nervous I was. Like literally one turned to the other and was like, oh, you know, he's so nervous. He's shaking. Um, oh and, you know, gosh. it's such like a whole, you know, it's like sticks in your mind. But at the time I was like, it's just proof that I got to just keep at it. You just go up there and you do it again the next week. And every week it's a little bit better. I definitely appreciate the steps there. And the the self-awareness question of if you were to hire somebody to take your job tomorrow, what would they need to do better? Uh, such a good way to sort of depersonalize the, the areas of growth that you experience. Were there other hurdles along the journey? So maybe, I guess, like mid-2010s to now that you've used the same framework to help build awareness around and identify areas that you wanted to grow as a leader? I mean, I think actually one of the most challenging things is who do you hire first? You know, which kind of parts of your job do you replace? Because scaling yourself is is all about replacing yourself in a way. It's like, what do I do? Where am I the most impactful? And why am I so impactful in that area? There are some things that only you can do. Like if you're the CEO of the company, there's there are some things that only the CEO can do. Um, and if you're the CTO, it's the same thing. There's just there's some things that really only you can do. And you have to look at your job and say, okay, which of these things truly can only I do? And which of them can only I do because I don't have the people that can do it, which is really different. You know, one is like my, by way of my position and authority and like seat on the executive, the executive team, you know, there are some things only I can do, but there's a bunch of things that like, maybe I shouldn't be doing. Um, and then you really have to map out your hiring prioritization accordingly, I think. And, you know, there were a lot of platform things that only I was doing early on, or I was like really required for. And so I focused on hiring there quickly. You know, I also got some good advice from an investor who said, first hire the people who do the things that you don't like doing because you'll tend to neglect them, which I think is really good advice. But the flip of that, I think can also be true that companies are often worst at what their founders are best at, because they take way too long to hire those people. And they keep trying to fill that gap, which is really, really unhealthy. Um, And so, you know, being aware of that and hiring prioritization is super, super important. How do you think about sort of that that same sort of hiring and scaling, like does that change at all? Like as a, a company gets more mature to the, the size and scale that Credit Karma is now, like does the way you think about scaling yourself change as it gets more mature? Yeah, it does a little bit, I think, because, you know, hopefully when you're at our size, you've scaled to the point where you've been successful in essentially like having a point person you know, everywhere, right? And so then I think your job becomes more like, where, where are the deficiencies in my system and how do I kind of shake it up? You know, that's hard because you built this giant scaffolding, you built this huge structure. Um, and now you need to go look at it and say like, okay, well, you know, where is it flawed? And how do I change it when, you know, there's, it's 
you know, it's so big and so interconnected. And so that's, I think, really different from just the building phase. Changing in some respects can be harder than, than building. You know, you get a lot of internal resistance and people that don't necessarily have an interest in you changing everything around. How did you identify the deficiencies in the system? And then what did that change look like within the context of your time at Credit Karma? Yeah. So I think there's this like kind of concept of like manufacturing sampling where you're kind of trying to like get little bits of the picture of how like different organizations work by kind of like zooming in on different levels at different times, just so you can kind of experience it. And then you're hopefully forming a picture of like their function or dysfunction accordingly. And, you know, I think the more you sense and see dysfunction, the more you should really be digging in and and spending more and more time. And, you know, I've definitely had organizations where I could just tell these two organizations don't work well together. It's pretty evident. And people will sometimes just come out and tell you, you know, it's horrible working with this organization, vice versa. And you kind of have to ask yourself, you know, why is that? What is it? Is it structural? Is it people? Is it people that need to go get a beer together? Or is it that you gave them two completely opposite objective functions and they're never going to get along because you kind of set them up to fail? And both are possible. I've seen both. And you kind of have to ask yourself then, you know, if you're if you're in the case where you just built this thing incorrectly or you build it for a past version of your company and it needs to change, you're like, it's sort of like refactoring code. Like, what what does it need to look like now? It's a lot harder than refactoring code. Refactoring people is very difficult. <laughs> refactoring code is done pretty well by IDEs now, but I haven't found the people ID yet. The, this concept of manufacturing sampling, how granular does it look? Like, is it facilitating skip levels? Is it going on a listening tour? Like, what does that sort of manufacturing sampling process look like in practice? Yeah, I think both those things are good. I think open door policies are good. I've gotten a lot of interesting kind of just like someone just reaching out to me types of feedback, like someone just dropping in or what have you. The like kind of reaching out like one-on-one is really hard. It gets harder and harder, I think, the further you are from the IC level because it becomes harder to have real relationships and be, people become extremely guarded in what they're kind of willing to tell you. So then you have to just become like very highly attuned. A very slight negative comment is sort of maybe akin to like dropping the F-bomb, right? Because <laughs> like they're, if they're can you, even hinting at a dysfunction, it might be like what five years ago someone would have been in your office like, this, you know, this whole thing is screwed up. I can't believe, you know, we're, you know, there's the people adapt their tone to the size of the organization and how far they are from you in it. And then also I would say like, go and develop some really trusted relationships at those levels. So like have some people who you can ask, like, Hey, ask around for me. Like, what do you think of this thing? And you know, you want people that, you know, kind of everyone trusts and doesn't think is going to go like rat them out and will deliver things to you in a way that you can kind of, you know, you can handle and manage. And that's worked really well because, you know, sometimes you might not get any signal, but that person comes and says like, look, go and ask these three people, you know, for their real opinion. And that's really helpful. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Is there a moment that you remember where you sensed a dysfunction and then do you remember what 
sort of transformation or change within the system that that detection led to? Yeah, I just, I, well, I just went through a big one. So I guess I could actually talk about that a little bit. So we, we had an organization called Recommendations and Recommendations job was to power, essentially like you could imagine AI for the entire site, all the property, email, push notifications, everything kind of ran through this recommendations team. They're, they're kind of like the algorithms team in some way. Um, and then we had different teams that built like monetizing experiences. And um, there was a team that was called Core and they they built the front of the applications. So, like when you open the app, this is what the, what it looks like. And this is how the information architecture is laid out. And, you know, these are features people use, et cetera. And these two teams, you can imagine, had to work together a lot because the core team always wants to change something. And then I would be pushing for why would we just change it once? Why wouldn't it be something that an algorithm actually recommends me the right thing, you know, when I use it. But when you kind of like really start to look at that problem, the reason that the core team wouldn't often wouldn't want to make something a, a smarter recommendation is because then they sort of like lose control of the feature and it goes to this other team who now controls it. And you have to like set up all these kind of cross organizational interaction points and get on each other's roadmaps. And like, you know, you don't have the same vision. So there's all this aligning and you know, they just don't like it. Kind of it, it, people just don't like it. And for, for good reason, right? You suddenly, you know, you had this like whole vision in your head of like how this feature might go from A to Z over the next, you know, three years. And now all of a sudden, like version two, you kind of, you kind of lost control of it. Eventually, you know, I just merged the two, which was, you know, not an easy thing to do for a lot of reasons. But my reasoning there is like, hey, the, the vision for the company is not a world where there are algorithms kind of coexisting with features. It's the algorithms and the features are the same thing. You know, a smart product is algor- the algorithms are the features. They're, we should be we shouldn't even be thinking them as separate things. They're one thing, um, and I want us to look and behave that way. And um, so after you know we merged, I actually did get a lot of feedback that you know was a big issue for quite some time. But the organizational structure that we had had made sense at the time that we created it. It's just that you know for today's credit karma and tomorrow's didn't make sense anymore, so it needed to be changed. Uh, it's such a great story, especially looking at how the platform was evolving and the needs of the different features coming together, but then also the people side of it and sort of the ownership dynamics at play in the sense of identity over we own this one thing, giving it up. Like there is like a little bit more of like a an identity challenge there. Were there certain conversations that you felt were important to have to lead to a positive outcome in merging those two teams? Quite a lot. I mean, you have to really identify who are going to be the key people in that transition. And you want them to be really bought in, you know, see the vision, you know, see where it's going, you know, really understand. And so, you know, I, I spend a lot of time there first and, you know, I had a strong feeling definitely when we wanted to go in this direction. But, you know, if I had like really visceral negative feedback, you know, right off the bat, I definitely would have considered it. Now, you know, there have been times where I've listened to that kind of feedback and been like, all right, all right, I'll hold off for a while. Um, and then there's been other times where I'm like, actually, you know what, I think this is like all the more reason to go ahead. In this particular case, people were really bought in really early, because I, I think that they had just felt this pain, like this strife had been causing so much pain for so long that it was sort of worth it. And then, you know, kind of going across the organization and getting people to understand, like, how does this affect their operations? And you know, these groups did a lot of things for them and you're kind of paving the way so that people aren't freaking out that their annual plan is now wrecked and they have to go back and replan everything um, is actually, you know, a fair part of your job. Otherwise, like, you know, if you don't do that, what's going to happen is that you're going to push all that conflict down. So you just sort of 
let it go and then it blows up after the fact, then, you know, some poor senior manager has got like some FPNA guy from another group <laughs> breathing down his neck about some plan that's not there anymore. That's great. I wanted to transition back to a little bit more about how your leadership evolved. Because in preparation for this conversation, I heard through the grapevine that you have done or facilitated a number of different leadership or management experiments. And so I was wondering, in sort of the the archive of different leadership experiments or, or management experiments that you've you've hosted, are there favorite ones that you've you've done that worked? Or are there favorite ones that you've done that didn't work? Um, that'd be interesting to to share. I was always very interested in trying new things. And, you know, I believe that companies operate differently. You know, different things work for different companies and, you know, that we could pave our own way. And so at the time, I was really interested in deconstructing management and trying to figure out, like, what is it about management that's so important? Like, it sounds like a naive question, but you can actually start to peel it apart. And there are, there are all these different elements. There's coaching, there's direction, there's actual performance management. You know, you can... You know, listing them as an, an exercise that probably anyone listening to this could do. We decided to like bifurcate management into these two parts. So we created this like system of the like, coaches that were really like invested in your career progression. And we tried to like almost essentially eliminate managers. So like have like almost no managers and then, you know, have like way more coaches on the career progression side. And then you're getting like a lot of technical direction and your kind of performance management is coming from like a very small group of people that are really just kind of like focused on output. I, I, I remember it really well. So I did this um, board meeting where I, like I had this presentation for our investors on this coaching strategy and I had like this terrible slide. It was like a cartoon. It was a, it was like a joke slide, like with the Simpsons. And I can't remember what the exact slide was, but it was introducing this radical management concept with this like Simpsons gif. And I'm like, I don't know, like 29 or something. And they're probably just looking at me like, who is this idiot? And how do we remove him and replace him with someone who actually knows something about running a company? For whatever reason, they believed that uh, I was going to figure it out. And um, I did pretty quickly figure out that the coaching thing did not work, mostly because the investment from the coaches was actually the most challenging part because they're not they're not that actually connected to what you do. I mean, they, they like show a personal interest, but they don't have the same level of kind of like accountability and like motivation to dig in like a really good manager does. So their actual coaching like wasn't very good. You know, you wouldn't necessarily think that that was the worst part of the whole thing, but it actually was a pretty bad part because that was your your primary relationship was to this coach. And so that was kind of a mess and we abolished it and just got back to a more traditional structure. That's so interesting. And also like the audacity to present a radical change in management structure, like philosophy that way is so interesting. So these coaches, like, I just want to get to, to make sure I had it clear. They were like both technical experts, but also like career and like growth experts. And they were helping support like kind of the holistic career growth. Yeah, basically what we did at the time is we had like the, you know, the much more senior engineering folks, this most senior folks on the team, you know, who were like really kind of like more passionate about, you know, helping others. Um, we, kind, we kind of put them in that role and like, paired them with people that, you know, they connected with for whatever reason. But yeah, it wasn't great. <laughs> well, as I say, like if you if you had total freedom and it worked the way you wanted it to work, if you were introducing it today in, I guess, 2023 or so, how would you do it differently in a way that might actually achieve success? Yeah, I think like just fundamentally, it was a flawed concept, honestly. Like, I don't think that I would ever try it again because now that I've, you know, I was so early in my career, I hadn't seen 
all these different, you know, organizational structures and experimented with so many things as I have now. And so, you know, now I have like a much stronger appreciation for what traditional management actually does when done well. The problem is that it's so broadly defined. It's like, what does done well even Mm -hmm. mean? It it depends on, you know, where you are and who you're talking to, right? Like, is Twitter managed well now or before? Well, I mean, I I have strong opinions, but like, you know, you can... You actually get, you can get different questions, you know, different answers to that question from different people. And so, you know, I certainly have my perspective on what I think, you know, makes good managers good, but you know, it it is sort of up to the beholder. Are there experiments that worked out and that are some of your favorites? Are there any that come to mind that way? Well, that's a good question. Like, did we really nail anything? We've done a lot of things to try to reduce meeting time, you know, like meeting free days and that kind of thing. And I think most of the like ham fisted, like, you know, meeting pre Wednesdays and stuff, ultimately they all failed. Um, but was probably most effective was, you know, just kind of like continuously looking at the data and kind of like pushing people to cut, you know, again, it's like another one of those, like you, you would think this like dramatic change, like big experiment would work, but actually keeping a traditional structure, but just kind of culturally changing was much more effective like measure and respond. Um, and that's kind of across the board, always been the most effective. Like if you really want to change something, measure it, look at it a lot with the leadership team and then, you know, respond. And I think that that's the problem with a lot of changes people want to make is they don't actually measure and look often or it's something that's hard to measure and they, they kind of like lose the thread on and how do we know if it's working? Was there sort of like a management or a leadership area that was particularly challenging to measure and to get that initial signal on before you determined what the response should be? I think security can always be really difficult. The risk functions can always be really tough to get signal on because there's so many ways to look at that problem. And, you know, I was fortunate and that, you know, I was just a big hobbyist and I was like really passionate about the security space for a long time, like, you know, deep into my teens. And so, you know, I was just able to dig in a lot there, but that's a place where I think it can be really hard to get signal. And a lot of people are not literate at all. I mean, a lot of technologists, I think are pretty poor when it comes to security and don't have a very good understanding of how the bad actors work and don't ask the right questions. It's very easy in the security space to present you like some kind of heat map. And then, you know, three months later, make the red turn to green and like, you know, everyone like high fives each other. And <laughs> you didn't really actually like reduce your risk in any meaningful way. But everyone thinks they're doing a great job because, yeah, it's just like a lot harder to get a handle on the objective function. It's much easier to look at like how many services am I building and what's my burn down rate and all these things. Definitely. I wanted to go back to the story of the reorg between the two different the two different sort of feature sets you're talking about. And I want to go into more about your approach to building organizations, specifically how you match the organization, like the end structure you determine with what you want to see in the product. And I think this is such an incredible example of like the end vision for these things should be integrated anyway, so they should be two orgs. Can you talk a little bit more about your thought process around how you sort of match the vision for the organization with what you want to see in the product? Yeah, almost no matter how hard you try, the organization will create a product that looks just like it. It's so hard to avoid it. No matter, like so many times I have tried to come up with like these different information architectures and like done all these different ways of mapping through the app. But when you have these shared spaces that no one team owns and components on there that are shared, what happens is that people avoid them for the places where they can move much more quickly. And so if we're in a time 
time where I don't have a very crisp vision of kind of where we're going, I am a little hesitant about reorganizing because I don't want to make a change that then is going to be flipped by a major business shift, Mm -hmm. you know, a year or two later. But when we do start to head towards times of significant change and kind of business outlook or, you know, more commonly like product vision. I'm pretty particular about like, you know, we should be refreshing our vision, you know, like every three years, like you should have like a new three-year vision, technology and product. Um, You know, once you have that, you really need to look at your org and say like, is this org going to build that? Because if it's not obvious that it will, it probably won't you know, even if you change your priorities. And so around those times, if there is like a significant shift, it's pretty common to have some organizational change too. Because yeah, the org is just like, you know, you can think of it as just, you're building a machine that creates product, you know, and it will often just build a mirror image of itself. So you have to really be thoughtful about it, um, about how you construct that. Totally. And I can, t- that I can see how that filtering question of, is this organization going to build that w- with the example that you shared earlier? I guess, is there another example that comes to mind that sort of illustrates the question where you're, you're looking at an organization, you asked, is this org going to build that? And the answer was no. And there was an adjustment that had to be made. Yeah, there's quite a few where, you know, I had a, a vision of creating something and I was pushing, you know, the existing teams to do it. And then I realized, you know, it's just never, they're never going to prioritize it. And so we would create, you know, we create often just create like a, a separate team just to do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll just stand up an organization, just do that thing. And it might, it might last for some time, you know, so we, I wanted to change the front door of our, you know, our application. Um, and so I needed to, you know, create, you know, organizations, you know, kind of specifically around that at various times in our history, but like maybe the most, you know, kind of like to our last conversation, the predecessor to all this, you know, we had, we had a, the whole company kind of built credit products for a long time. You know, we all kind of built like what we call the core product in a way. And then the company created um, these monetizing organizations to then, you know, go and do the thing that we need to do, right? You know, get the top line going and build the business. And so we created like a credit cards organization, a personal loans organization, et cetera. And we sort of like, you know, expected that the behavior that had existed prior, that all the folks that were working on those core features would continue to work on them. And they were in these like horizontal teams that had those responsibilities, but that weren't like really explicitly chartered towards that. And so what happened was those teams that were like essentially what we call core now, you know, they didn't change that much. They were called like growth and engagement and some other stuff back then. They were like, essentially spending all of their time on vertical priorities because they considered themselves like horizontal teams that would go with sort of whatever the, you know, the company priority was. And from their point of view, like the company priority is now all of these monetizing things, all these monetizing organizations we created. Because for them, all of the organizational pressure was coming from these outside forces. And it greatly overshadowed like any kind of internal desire to build new features, et cetera. And so what I said was like, you know, we don't need to change the people. We don't need to change what we're doing, but we need to take this group, kind of like rename it, give them a new specific charter around some specific KPIs and make it clear that the features that we have been building are still the most important thing. And then working with the vertical priorities need to be a part of their charter, not like consume their whole charter. And they, they just needed like a real specific way of looking at the world to do that. And so we that's when I first created the core organization. And we created like a general manager type person and a charter and KPIs and structured it so that they had you know, now the freedom to do what they wanted. Um, but it wasn't easy. Uh, you know, that not everybody at the company liked that 
change. You know, the verticals didn't love it. <laughs> they previously had, you know, 100 people that were sort of jumping at every priority. And now these folks were saying like, oh, no, no, I have, you know, I have my own roadmap now. I'm going to put your thing in as number eight. <laughs> such a such a great story. The last question I want to ask you, Ryan, before we get into rapid fire, when you're looking towards the the future now, and you're taking the the context, like all of these lessons around building credit karma over the years, are there certain lessons, especially from like the previous economic climate and the impact that that had, when you're thinking about credit karma in the future that are, are shaping your approach for the for the future? For me, I think it's about stay focused on the product and don't take anything for granted. We were we started in the peak and then we went through a really terrible recession and you know then crypto was riding pretty high there for a while and now we're you know seeing a, a downside and you know there's these peaks and valleys and so you really need to kind of create like a mental through line and you know just learn how to like you know make hay when the sun is shining and you know don't panic when things turn bad don't go crazy don't spend everything don't over leverage yourself when times are good you know don't get carried away um so that when you know the next valley comes you're prepared and you're not panicking i think what's hard like when you start a new company and you start on the top or you start on the bottom it tends to shape how you know how you view the world and how you do everything and the more of these cycles you live through i think the more you hopefully can try to create like a more balanced perspective on on how you should manage. And you know, that's probably the thing I've taken away the most just at, you know, being here so long. That's great. Thank you. Ryan, are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Let's do it. All right. What are you reading or listening to right now? I'm about to start the genome odyssey, actually, because I'm just really into genomics right now. And I think that it's such a fascinating space that, you know, medicine in 30 years is just going to be completely different. You've shared a lot of great approaches with us so far. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? I think that so that systems experience was really valuable. And I, I don't know, if I were to go all the way back, maybe one of the most foundational things I ever did was when I was a kid, I installed Linux and I just really learned it inside and out. And throughout my entire career, it's been so valuable. Like knowing how the network works is helpful. You know, compiling your own kernel, even all these years later, like it's still helpful. That's great. What's a trend you're seeing or following that's interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? Yeah, right now, it's, it's such an interesting question because there's like so much going on right now. But right now, I, I'm really into personalized medicine, like kind of back to the genomics thing. And I think we're just like, we're right on the cusp of medicine changing to be like, not this like, hey, you know, here's the approach that works for everybody. But like, based on your own genetic sequencing, like this is what we're going to do for you. I think more and more we're going to discover that a lot of lifestyle things that lead to, you know, a cancer or dysfunction or whatever, actually only do that for like certain people with certain genetics. So like if we know who those people are and what those risks are, like we can actually customize even like your lifestyle to create different outcomes. So it's it's like not a thing at all. Like right now you go to the doctor and it's like, you know, well, here's what works for everybody. But I, I think in 20 years, maybe hopefully a lot less than that, it's going to be really different. That's super exciting. I. My background is in health and wellness. I was, uh, before getting involved with the ELC, was a pre-physical therapy student. So all of the emerging health tech areas, to me, it's like magic, but it's also an area where I geek out like crazy. So that's a really exciting trend to call out. What's been one of the most meaningful in-person experiences with your team, company, or otherwise? The first retreat we did after COVID, I guess after like you know, being locked down, I guess I don't know, COVID's like not over, but <laughs> when we, we were all on lockdown and no one saw each other for the longest time and we did this retreat and it was just 
amazing what people had gone through in a year. You know, some people had had the best year of their life and other people had worse. And it was just, people went through such profound, like personal and professional transformation in such a small amount of time. It was pretty impactful. Last question, Ryan, to wrap us all up and send us off. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's really been resonating with you right now? I have uh, one actually hung in my garage. My wife made this poster for me. It says, discipline before motivation. Uh, and I, you know, I look at, I like with lifting weights. So, you know, I look at it every time before I lift weights and some days I'm excited to get in there and other days it's just like, I know I got to do this. And it's kind of like the public speaking thing, you know, it's like, I didn't want to go up there. I was never motivated once to public speak, but I knew I had to do it. That is such a powerful way to tie it all back to the beginning. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing some incredible stories. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Patrick. It was great. I I loved being here. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast. 